Hi everyone, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, just CSE. CSE is a 501c6 nonprofit workforce development association dedicated to helping grow, support, and sustain the professionals charged with the cybersecurity of control systems. We're specifically talking about those systems that have pumps and valves and actuators, real cyber to physical moving parts, and control nearly every aspect of our modern connected industries. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It's my hope you find it inspirational or motivating or revealing or informative, and perhaps at times even a little entertaining. Take care and be well. Hey, this is Derek Harper, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I've got another uh, fantastic guest uh, on the show. I've got Gary Kessler. He is many things. So we'll just say under the umbrella today of Gary Kessler Associates and uh, his, his company, but he touches a lot of different projects and things and has been involved with so many th- different things. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. He's a former EMT firefighter. Uh, he's an outdoorsman. He's a bicyclist. He's a scuba diver, not only a scuba diver, which everybody knows is near and dear to my heart. He is a fellow master scuba diver trainer. We both have that in common. He is a boat captain. He's a father, a husband, a retired college professor. He is a computer programmer at the beginning of his journey and still today touches that. Uh, he's an author with many articles, over 75, I think, and three books. So this is a prolific contributor to cybersecurity uh, for many, many, many years. Uh, Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks, Derek. Well, Gary, um, I have my standard shtick that I always do. Some of these interviews go in different directions, but I always start with the superhero analogy. And every superhero in, has a backstory, and cybersecurity people are sort of modern-day superheroes. So, what's your backstory? You know, where do you where do you come from? Uh, I, I should start by telling you I was born in a little log cabin in Illinois, but that's probably somebody else's backstory. Um, I uh, grew up in Southern California, L.A. My parents actually were living in um, Westchester, California, which will mean no, nothing to most anybody, except that uh, in the late 1950s, their house was taken so that they could expand LAX. So the house where I was living when I was born is now somewhere under the north runway of LAX. And we moved to a little uh, town called Los Alamitos, just south of Long Beach. And I went to school in Northern California. I went to Humboldt State. We were so far north in Northern California that I I, I was like 17 or 14 hours away from home um, and still in California, a thousand miles away or something silly like that. And I got a degree in math. I then uh, started out for my master's in computer science at the University of Arizona. I worked for a year um, doing a, being a computer programmer at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in LA, where I worked in the cardiology department, learned a whole lot about physiology, and then uh, followed my girlfriend to Vermont in 1977, uh, finished up my master's in computer science there, and then eventually, um, well, my girlfriend and I split up. I met another woman. We got married, had our, our children. Went for a few years to California. I worked at Lawrence Livermore Lab in the early 80s. And then um, back to Vermont, since we missed Vermont. And I worked at a data communications training company, teaching datacom primarily to uh, telephone companies. My first wife died of cancer at the uh, 2001. And around um, 2000, I started teaching at a small college in Vermont. And I was there for 10 years. And a couple of years later, ended up getting a job here at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach. I created the job for myself because I love Vermont. Vermont is a beautiful, wonderful place, and the winters were kicking my ass. And I figured I'd done 36 of these. I've paid my dues. And I'm a boat captain with a, and a scuba instructor and a five-month season in Vermont. And apparently, you can do that year-round in Florida. And I do. It's about diving in Vermont. I mean, I don't know Vermont that well. I'm sure you can. I know from other places you can dive, quote unquote, everywhere in the world, but it's not all the same. And it does get rather cold. That is true. But if you can dive in Vermont, you can pretty much dive anywhere. I imagine um, so. I imagine yeah. so. So uh, anyway, so um, I retired uh, from Riddle at the end of 2020. I've been engaged one way or another in, well, what we now call cybersecurity, now going on, geez, Louise, um, probably about 45 years or so. Took my first computer programming class 50 years ago. So for about the last six plus years, I've been doing a lot of work related to maritime cybersecurity. So that's where most of my research is. Most of the 10,000 lines of code I've written in the last five years have been somewhere around maritime cyber. And uh, my the last book I wrote 
was uh, on maritime cyber. Um, that was my COVID project. In 2020, I co-wrote a book on maritime cyber. Our second edition came out last year. I need to start working on a third version uh, at the end of this year because it, it's moving fast. Yeah, and you you were a speaker at a, at an event for us, um, you know, this year, and and I remember the just some of the bullet points around maritime and and sort of major changes in play right now. Bandwidth becoming affordable, which then opens up all kinds of attack surfaces because people are making the connection and saying, "Hey, we oh, can yeah. do this and we can do that remotely," and all these sorts of things, which just then makes the threat actors, uh, you know, gleeful about what the things they might be able to do as well. So let's pick apart your your journey a little bit. When did cybersecurity, uh, obviously heavy duty, you know, technology and IT and you know computer science that goes way back. You you know that's what you were cutting your teeth on. When did security, you know, first pop its head up on your on that path? So you know, people that are in the security business, either physical security or cybersecurity, it doesn't really matter. You know, you, you sort of have a mindset where you uh, you know you go into a building and you say, wow, you know, if somebody wanted to break into this building, you know, the um, the, the 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 hinge pins are on the outside of that door. You know, shouldn't they be on the inside? And you know, you look for cameras and stuff like that. So I took my first computer programming class in 1973, as I said, and um, I, I was at a system. We had cards, and I never thought twice about that. Although we we frequently would would observe that if you had a big deck of cards, um, usually we were putting them in a tray, and we would just leave them up in the engineering building, so you didn't have to schlep them around all over the place. And it dawns on me in retrospect, I have no idea why we were naive enough to leave the cards there. Nobody ever screwed with them, but I don't know at what point people started becoming a little bit more nervous and paranoid. But then I went to the University of Arizona and we had two systems. One was a timesharing system, it was a deck 10, and um, one was a big CDC um, 7600 um, on which we also use cards. And unlike my undergraduate school, where you just had your, your cards for your program, at University of Arizona, your first card was your username, and your second card was your password. And then you have the rest of the program. Well, <laughs> if you have cards and people can get access to your card deck, why wouldn't they be looking at your username and your password? And so I started gaining a little bit of an interest then, and and then... I had one of my colleagues in the computer science department demonstrated what we would now call a timing attack um, against the operating system, where the way the operating system was designed, you know, you had all these cards, right? So you had a username and a password. Well, somebody discovered, you know, it takes, um, I don't know, a thousand milliseconds to determine that the username and the password are correct. And it takes... 2,000 milliseconds to pull up the Fortran compiler. And the card right after the username and the password would be identifying what compiler do you want to pull up. So somebody said, well, let's optimize the system. While you're looking for the username and the password, why not start pulling up the Fortran compiler or COBOL or whatever it is you were doing? Because if the password was wrong, then they would just terminate the process. No harm, no foul, right? Well, what this guy discovered was all of this was being done in assembly language. So the third card, instead of calling up the Fortran compiler, would merely call up the compass assembler, which of course took zero milliseconds because we're already running the assembler. And then he'd have eight instructions in which he could crash the computer. So before the computer could figure out what was going on, you know, we crashed the thing. And so we brought that to the technicians in residence. Um, Gary, what year is that? 1976. Um, this is, I think that that's critical because. You're talking about the, the the you know like like you said why is this door this way the light bulbing I mean that that's as early as anybody's you know thinking about this like huh well and to prove that very point we brought this to the techs we said hey you know if you do this this will happen and they looked and they said oh you're right well don't do that because <laughs> because that was you know cybersecurity in yeah. 1976 and then I went to the University of Vermont the next year with with my girlfriend and I discovered. And I won't go into any detail really on this, but I, I, I discovered a mechanism that is basically a log on spoofing attack, where what I could do is I could run a program that made it appear that I had just logged out. And then I'd walk away from the terminal and somebody else would come in and they'd hit the button that they wanted to hit and they would get a screen that looked like a login screen. 
and they put in their username and their password and they'd get a message saying, oh, no, that was wrong. And then they'd say, oh, crap, hit the button again. And then they'd put in their username and password. They'd be able to log on and they were fine. Well, what would happen is while I was running my login spoofing program, I was getting their username and their password. And I said, that's not right. And I went to my friend who's in the computer center at the University of Vermont and said, hey, look it, you know, somebody can write a program and do this, that, and the other thing and get people's usernames and passwords. And what did they say? Don't do that. Exactly. And I said, okay, you know, I, I, I demonstrated my capability and that's all so I wanted to do. Have we missed a huge opportunity just telling the, the threat actors, don't do that? As, as I mean, could that have solved all this? Well, I think they didn't possibly view me as a threat actor. <laughs> So I've always been underestimated, I, I, I suppose, you know, and um, so I discovered at some point in my career that, and, and unfortunately, I've, I've gone back to the beginning, you know, at the beginning, I, I love to write code and I like to implement things. And um, sometime in the 90s, I realized that I was not as interested in implementing solutions as finding problems and finding a solution to the problems. And once it was clear we had a workable solution, I was happy to let other people actually implement the solution. I wanted to move on to another problem. And so I, I think my my inadvertent and nascent hacking career, um, there was a lot of that. You know, it was like, gee, this is a good idea. Will it actually work? And then I realized it would actually work. And I said, okay, well, I'd solved the intellectual challenge. I was not really ever um, really a cyber criminal or a black hat. And I've, you know, worked in a number of jobs and positions where, um, I, you know, I've had an opportunity to hack into things and break things. But I, I think many of the um, members of the hacker community today, that's the way they discovered how things worked. And I remember when I was, you know, a, a baby programmer up at Humboldt State College in the 70s, there were all sorts of people saying, you really want to learn the way the operating system works? break the computer. And I didn't really know what they were talking about until the first time I broke the computer and said, oh, I just learned a whole lot about the way these devices interact with each other. And um, so that, that that sort of remained a, apparently, a lifetime interest. Yeah. And your, your career is riddled with things. I mean, InfraGuard Vermont founding president, uh, you know, by the time you get to Embry-Riddle, you eventually become department chair for cybersecurity, for security studies and international affairs. You're, you're teaching cybersecurity at the home and defense, you know, uh, security programs. So cyber cybersecurity is all throughout going back many, many years. When does, and, you know, not, I know we're going to, I want to end on talking about all the maritime stuff, which definitely has control systems in it, you know, ship control systems, all these sorts of things. How far back with cybersecurity is a long story for you. When does, when does any, you know, operating or uh, control or, or operating technology converge on your path? And is it maritime? Is that how it first happens? Or is there exposure to something before maritime? No, actually, um, I would have to say I didn't really start getting into, you know, OT, ICS, whatever you're, but that, that would all be really uh, in maritime. Um, I mean, I, I've certainly been aware of it, but it wasn't until I started looking seriously at maritime that I realized the, the integration and the building of cyber physical systems. And, and I think even the building of cyber physical systems is a relatively new phenomenon, relatively, the last 10 or 15 years. Um, so back in my early days, you know, we, we didn't have any of that stuff. Yeah, I think that's industry by industry by industry. You know, I served, uh, I, I got a, I saw you, I see your ball caps up behind you. And I, so a bulk, I got my ball caps up. Uh, if you're, you know, listening to the podcast, you can't see our video, but maybe, maybe you'll catch a clip on YouTube. But uh, we both got our, are, uh, are those Coast Guard? Many of them are. Let's see, a couple of them are uh, are, are, are police departments where I worked okay. on forensics. Um, yeah. And yeah. So, you know, I, my ship was a 1972 ship. It, it, there wasn't a network, you know, uh, port and starboard networks controlling <laughs> things, you know, right. and, I, and I've seen some of the schematics or designs and discussions on modern, you know, modern ships. So at some point, ships start to be produced and there are absolutely you know, complicated networks going fore and aft and and, uh, and, and right. redundancy, port side, starboard side, and all these sorts of things. And so, you know, depending on the plant, depending on the oil refinery, you know, when when sort of new these newfangled technologies, and you know, IT technologies started coming into those spaces varies from company to company. And so, some stuff goes back earlier than ten years, and some companies they're still quite quite ancient. You know, even still oh, yeah. today, it still works. Don't touch it. Um, where's the state of maritime as far as Go information technology being you know all up in their business. 
Several years ago, there was a, um, a maritime CEO conference where one of the CEOs made the observation that the maritime industry is anywhere from 30 to 500 years behind in technology. And, and, and of course, I read that and I laughed. And then I said, what other industry do we have in the world that could be 500 years behind? How many are that old? Right. Um, right. In this case, thousands of years old. But yeah. in, in many ways, maritime's all over the place. Um, on, the, on the one hand, you have um, companies that still have every device on the same network on the ship, and they haven't even started to uh, segment their networks. And then you have other vessels that are completely autonomous. They're running under AI, they're crewless uh, vessels. I mean, we, we have a small number of those, but we've had some significant demonstrations in the last few years of, you know, in one case, there was a tug, I think, oh, somewhere in Scandinavia, you know, that circumnavigated the nation. We're starting to see uh, the building of larger vessels to go point to point, you know, port to port around the world. And, and, and the fact that we have the technology that will allow a boat to go from a sea buoy to another sea buoy someplace on the open water, that doesn't surprise me at all. It's the building of the boat that then is going from the sea buoy to a dock in brown water. I mean, yeah. you, don't, you don't have a lot of margin of error uh, yeah. there. And, and, and to me, you know, a similar analogy would be, you know, I, I can build myself, um, you know, an 18-wheeler that can get on a freeway and drive autonomously to the exit in which it wants to get off. I mean, on the freeway, there's only a finite number of things that you're going to deal with. Once you hit the exit ramp, the number of things you might have to deal with goes up more than exponentially. And so I trust the 18-wheeler, once it hits exit 368 on I-95, way less than I trust it when it's going from, as I said, exit to exit. So like I said, so, so in maritime, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing the highest end use of autonomy, by the way, without the highest end use of cybersecurity, but that's a different story. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you have vessels that are, you know, difficult to secure. And, and this is significantly analogous to all sorts of different manufacturing. And you can just find these modern greenfield being put in and there's network segmentation, all these things. Sure. That people talk about every security practitioner is talking about a couple of standard things, right? Asset discovery, knowing where everything is, knowing how it's communicating, monitoring those. But let's face it, there's a ton of places that are none of that's going on yet, or very little of it. Ships right. have to be maritime has to be. I'm listening to you. It's the same thing. You're going to find a brand new ship now. Is a brand new ship? Is that still going to be also quite diverse? Or nah, they're making ships. They're all modern and connected. Well, I would like to believe that all modern ships, if they have modern uh, communications design are should be you know coming out of the, the 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 manufacturing site relatively more secure than some of the older vessels. But you know a lot of it has to do with well, whether my, you. My, wait, my point was more. I, I hadn't even jumped to secure. Are they all? They're all modern networked. Whether they're secure or not, that's where the manufacturer's got the discipline to do it. But are they okay. all? Are anything new or anything built in the last X years? Are those all networks, important starboard networks? Is that the way modern ships are made? Or no, there's still a wide variety of ships being made. There, there, there's still a wide variety. I mean, what's okay. coming out of the plant is a boat. And so now the issue is now I'm going to put on the network. How did I design the network? So they can be wired any old way. Now, I, I would like to believe that they're using modern techniques, but the, the, there's no guarantee of what that modern technique is going to look like. Well, so that's still the same about equipment manufacturers, not to pull any of them out, but the whole group, Yokogawa, Stevens, ABB, Rockwell, they're all at different stages and different maturities. And, yep. and so that's the same thing then for boat builders. They're they're not mm -hmm. all building the same sort of craft. Are some, are there some saying, we get it, we're going to make secure ships, even part of their brain? Is anybody doing that yet? Um, I believe that there are certainly some. And and those are the, 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 the same companies, I believe, that have a pretty good cyber safety culture within their own organization. And, and certainly that ripples from the organization all the way down to the vessels. And, but those are also some of the bigger organizations. And so it, it's unclear when I read who's got what profit margin in maritime. 
I mean, sometimes I read, oh yeah, they're doing great. And other times I'm, you know, it's, it, it's like they're making a dollar per container. <laughs> you know, some of the smaller companies um, are, are hurting a little bit more than the bigger companies. Even so, some of the bigger companies are getting whacked all the time. Um, we've had a couple of the bigger companies that um, have actually been fined because, you know, if, if you have a cyber incident that causes loss of customer information, employee information, PII, PHI, what have you, okay, that, that, that can happen. When it happens two or three times in a matter of two or three years, that smacks of a company that maybe is not doing its due diligence. And yeah. that's when uh, government agencies and regulators start to step in and say, okay, we think you need to get a fine. Yeah. Because you're yeah. not fixing it. So when did when did your cybersecurity, your technology path, then cybersecurity becomes the main theme in your life? Um, maritime was a personal thing, right? Being a boat captain, that goes back away. That that was just, that's your yeah. personal passionary, right? Well, I, I grew up, you know, in Southern California, I grew up on the water. Didn't know many people who owned boats, so I didn't spend a lot of time on boats. When I moved to Vermont, uh, Vermont's body of water is Lake Champlain, a um, a very large freshwater lake. It is the sixth largest lake in the United States. For a while in the 90s, it was a great lake. Don't remember that, do you? Yes. For a very short period of time, it was we, had, it, we had six great lakes. Oh, wow. It was It was all, all political. You may be familiar with zebra mussels. Yes. Um, zebra mussels yeah, are an invasive species. They were introduced probably by a foreign vessel in the Great Lakes. It eventually got down to Lake Champlain. Coming up through the St. Lawrence Seaway and so coming down. Yeah, coming yeah, down. down. Yeah, yeah. The University of Vermont wanted some money to do some study about the zebra mussels in Lake Champlain. And we're told, well, no, um, there's National Science Foundation money for zebra mussel investigation in the Great Lakes. And Pat Leahy, senior senator from Vermont at the time, said, well, can you cut them some money? Oh, no, this is only for the Great Lakes. So Pat did what politicians do. And, the, and um, so Vermont became a Great Lake so that UVM could get some research funds. And then finally, everybody said, okay, okay, listen, why don't we just rename the grant for the Great Lakes and Lake Champlain and put the books back to where they were? And now everybody can just remember HOMES as the acronym for the Great Lakes, and they don't have to figure out, how do we get that C in there? You know. Um, so in any case, yes, for a short period of time in the early 90s, uh, Lake Champlain was a Great Lake. In any case, um, so I started doing boating and diving in Lake Champlain. I got my first boat actually a little over 30 years ago. And um, I, I, I love being in, on, and under the water. And in fact, I would observe that probably around 2016 or so, I was realizing, you know, I'm going to be 65 in a couple of years. And I had to think that at some point I want to retire, spend a lot of time on a dive boat. And then I discovered maritime cyber. I said, oh my God, this pulls together like everything except music, everything for which I have passion. And, and it was really interesting stuff too. So what's and, your first what's your first nexus for cybersecurity and maritime? What's the first project or thing that draws those two together for you? Because now it seems like that's a lot. I mean, that's when I see what you're speaking and writing on, certainly what yeah. you spoke on one of our panels on, your maritime and cybersecurity are married for you. And that's a huge new, you know, for yeah. me. For she say that's like one of these exciting verticals. We got a bunch of these verticals. And Maritime's a whole exciting vertical that you're focused on. I mean, are you? What was that spark? So I actually discovered Maritime while, well, so first I'm at Embry Riddle Aeronautical University. Yeah, they all find out I'm a captain. They're very excited. Then they, oh, you're a sea captain. Well, <laughs> okay. So then they're not impressed. Um, I was asked to put together a talk on aviation cybersecurity in mid-2017. And amazingly, I knew very little about aviation cyber. Nobody was talking about aviation cyber, you know, six, seven years ago. And so I, I'm putting together this talk. And while putting together the talk, I discovered two things. Um, one, I accidentally stumbled upon a talk about maritime cyber. And then I looked at the, you know, the system of systems. And I said, well, wait a minute. I got ships. I've got airplanes. I've got shipping lines. I've got airlines. I've got ports. I've got airports. I've got cargo. I've got people. And I realized that, wow, I mean, word for word, I could practically substitute one set of problems for another. So I put together the talk on aviation cyber. And then I realized that as really cool as that was, 
I really like the maritime cyber. I used to think that aviation was in trouble cybersecurity-wise, and then I met maritime and said, oh, they're really in a mess. And when I did some of my reading, one of the early research papers I stumbled upon was some work that was done by uh, Marco Balduzzi and his team at um, Trend Micro about some of the security problems with the automatic identification system with AIS. And it just intrigued me. And so from a research perspective, that was that little rat hole that I followed. But I've, I've attempted to maintain being a generalist in maritime cyber if you can be a generalist in a specialty, um, I, I, I've tried to, you know, be a generalist in maritime cyber, you know, since then. And yeah, so I think so that answered I, your question or tap danced yeah, around it. Yeah, or no, it totally did. Yeah. Where that, where that, that spark, you know, of, the, of your stuff converging, right? Things you had already, different parts of you converged in one place. So I know people, you know, this is sort of the question is, can, can someone, can someone hack a ship and change the rudder? You know, they're, they're thinking of these big things, you know, um, obviously, could you get information about shipping schedules, you know, P, not PII, but, you know, like content, right? Data that's valuable. Yeah, I think people could wrap their head around that and, you know, knowing where the ship's going to be and all that. But when you talk yep. about cyber to physical systems, you're like, well, that's, now we're talking about, can you, can you cause harm, um, bodily harm to, to people on the ship or to people near the ship? What? What's the reality or not of that that picture? You know, it, it, it's hard trying to convince people of a reality when something hasn't happened before. Yeah. And and amazingly, you'd be surprised at how many people in the maritime industry I talk to um, who, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about potential things. They'll say, yeah, but, you know, if that was potential, somebody would have done it by now. And uh, but getting but ignoring that mindset for a second, there, there are any number of things, actually, that um, that could be done to a vessel that could be harmful. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you, well, I'll give you a couple of innocuous examples. In early 22, I think, um, maybe it was 21, there was a vessel um, off the coast of Japan that lost power. It lost power because the oil sensor indicated low oil pressure. It caused the engine, because of course, modern vessels only have one engine, caused the engine to shut down because it wants to prevent itself from seizing up, right? It took the crew four minutes to realize why the engine shut down and that the oil pressure was fine and get the engine restarted again. In those four minutes, the vessel lost 2% of its um, cargo overboard. So when that happened, I observed, okay, this was not a cyber attack. I mean, that was legitimate failure. And then it dawned on me, well, you know, if I were to take uh, a rogue device and put it on the ship and monitor the gyroscope, and wait until I detect a high level of pitch roll and yaw, indicating bad weather. And now I'm going to pretend to be the oil sensor, and I'm going to send out information indicating low oil pressure. Now, the oil sensor might be sending out a message once every, I don't know, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, five seconds, doesn't matter. I'm sending out 100 per second. I'm going to overwhelm any good news by showing bad news. Could I damage a vessel that way? Vessels having lost power can have catastrophic results. The end of 22, I believe, there was a Thai warship that sank after losing power, taking a little bit of water on board, which merely exacerbated the electrical problems, more water on board. They couldn't get the pumps. They couldn't get rescue from other vessels because of rough seas. And well, they lost the ship and they lost many sailors. There are all sorts of Example doomsday scenarios, vessels, you know, that that same rogue device, rather than wait for the gyroscope to show me bad weather, how about monitor the GPS location and wait until I am in a critical, read that as a narrow channel, kill Van Cull, Suez, Panama, you know, you name it. And as soon as I indicate that I'm, you know, within some region, um, GPS wise, pull the rudder hard over, up the throttle. And, and, and I've seen any number of these scenarios where the people on board the vessel, they're going to know something's going wrong, but it takes a few seconds to really understand that something's going wrong. And then you correct it the way you normally would. You turn the rudder, but the rudder's not responding. You pull back on the throttle, but the throttle's not responding. Because everything on a ship now, as you know, I mean, in the old days when we were kids, you push on the throttle and there's a cable somewhere. Well, there's no longer a cable. Everything's been fly by wire for, you know, depending on where you are, 20 yeah, to 40 years. 
we we ordered up as a ship's officer, we'd order up the change in coarser speed up up in the pilot house, and then it would yep. like reflect down there, and they would make changes in the plants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so today, with everything being fly by wire, I can put devices to be sitting in the middle of what's going on at the bridge and what's going on in the engineering station. Uh, there's so many um, threads I want to pull here. I mean, one I want to joke and say, oh, but that would require some sort of disgruntled insider. Oh, wait, the number one threat, you know, threat actor in our annual reports, the winner is absolutely insiders, you know. That's uh, right. So, you know, I'm joking. Of course, they could make you get access, even if it wasn't an insider. There's ways, right, in the shipyard right. or here or there. Well, you know, uh, disgruntled insiders are probably more of a threat in an organization where you have people that are happily working where they're working. In maritime, you have a lot of cases where the bridge crew and the officers have to become more and more technologically aware than ever uh, because, I mean, look at what they're driving now. And yet you have many crew members who, you know, we're beyond the days of people being shanghaied at least, you know, Shanghai by Chris pulling Banks. them on a bar on the Barbary <laughs> Coast. But but many of them, you know, it, it it it's a hard life being paid very, very poor wages and being away from home for six months. Yeah. It's real easy to possibly subvert one of those type of individuals. Yeah. And now, not to mention the fact boats stop at ports and maintenance people are getting on the boat and yeah. some ports have better security about who's getting on and what they're doing and then others for sure for sure yeah the the possibilities that the attack surfaces like all of our surfaces they're multiplying and, yeah. and that brings me to something that a, a colleague of yours in the industry was sharing with me around the time you were doing an event with us i was talking to somebody else and he said we're at a seismic shift for this so anybody's saying this is the way you know some sort of static look at the last 30 years and there hasn't been an incident you know this sort of that mindset he said, we're, we're now with the huge drop in bandwidth cost to ships. There's going to be an exponential, or is, I guess, an exponential rise in connectivity to the ship and new use cases. Well, we can adjust this from here. We can monitor that. The, the ship owners, operators, the global concerns want to do things to their ship, potentially, from far away, that, that, that that's going to blow up because it was so expensive. I forget the number, like $10,000 a month for a good connection. And that's going to be now below a thousand dollars a month, uh, you know, and so a lot more people are going to be able to afford the connections. Well, more and more uh, shipping lines are now also hooking onto Starlink. Yeah, and, I think that's um, what he was because, talking about. Yeah. yeah, because of that very thing. So, you know, a, a couple things always come to mind with this. This is um, perhaps a a poor time in history to re-invoke 9/11, but I remember being with some cop buddies of mine. Uh, right after 9-11, uh, this, so this would have been sometime in 2002, talking about some security issues with somebody who said, if that was possible, it would have happened already. And one of my my colleagues said, for the last 100 years, you've been able to fly planes into buildings. Nobody did it until last September. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that the vulnerability does not exist. It means that nobody has yet chosen to exploit it. Yeah. And so I haven't referred to the rate of change in technology for at least 15 years. I've been talking about the acceleration of change. It is going so much faster than we can necessarily comprehend. You alluded to a little bit about autonomous vessels. So using autonomous vessels as an example, any any boat that's on the water, uh, particularly if there's a commercial person behind it, we're all subject to the collision regulations. And these are the rules of the road. Well, one of the rules on the road is you maintain a good lookout. Well, how am I doing that on an autonomous, crewless vessel? Well, clearly I'm going to do that with a whole boatload, no pun intended, um, of cameras. And the cameras now need to be connected someplace, right? So the bridge of the future is going to look like my office while I'm drinking coffee and I'm you know, monitoring the camera on this vessel. Yeah. It's naive to believe that nobody's going to be able to break into that signal. And I don't care how much encryption you have and how much VPN you have. It's naive to believe that that is immune from attack. So, you know, we, we hadn't started to talk about this yet, but, you know, while autonomy is, is a huge area of research, I'm surprised at how few papers I have seen on ways to secure autonomous vessels. Yeah, there needs to be more going all the way back to the beginning of our question of our conversation. More, why are the hinges on the outside of the door? I mean, that level of inquisitiveness right now. 
Yep. Okay, we're looking at all these new technologies and new applications, and I'm I'm generally for a lot of that. I mean, I, I like innovation. However, can we do it? You know, can we have security by design? You know, can it security be right. part of the engineering of this from day one, not retrofitting it, which we're forced to do today? Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. Oh, rats! What was the name of the uh, of the submersible that got? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, Recently. so yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the guy who, who owned that company was very big about we're trying to avoid regulation. You know, regulation stops innovation. And I'm not convinced that that's true. Regulation can be strangling. I get that. But it, it is clear that unfettered work without some level of oversight and or thought can also be catastrophic. Yeah, I was looking up. I was trying to look up the name of it. That's um, got. I so want to much... say Quest or something, but that sounds yeah. like it can't be yeah. right. Yeah, I'm finding all kinds of news on it, but nobody—they're not naming it. You know, OceanGate was the company, the Titan Submersible. Yeah, that's it. Yes, the Titan Submersible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's it's uh, it's it's fine line, right? You know, um, um, I think there's more than more than one sort of questioning, like who really held up the idea of um, fail fast, and I forget the other terms for just like go so fast. It's okay. There's failure, but that's where you know that's where all the exciting stuff happens. And like, there's a hidden cost to all that. We and, and I, I'm I'm become a big believer. It's like we've got a lot of brownfield stuff from ships to oil refineries that we got to yep. retrofit what we can. Right? You got to deal with what the reality of the asset you have. But man, oh man, let's not make new stuff that just is inherently not you know not even it doesn't have any smart security engineering even involved in the process. Yep. Well, and that that goes back. You've already mentioned this, and I and I and I sort of started to mention this earlier. Is this whole idea of secure by design? When you build a system, think about how you're going to secure it. So, and and actually, that goes back a little bit to my background. I'm um, my my background academically is mathematics and computer science. So this is you know more or less I, I have a little bit of an engineering mindset. And there's an adage that um, I was introduced to many many years ago that basically said that, that engineers don't understand security. We live in solution space, not problem space. So, you know, you tell me that you want a way of purifying water. Okay, we're engineers. We're going to come up with a way of purifying water. What we're not going to do is come up, how could somebody taint the water that we are purifying, you know? And, and so when it comes to thinking about systems, information systems, which there could be attack, we build in all sorts of resiliency, right? But we're building in resiliency without understanding who our enemy is. We think our enemy is nature. I understand nature stochastically. I can figure out statistically, what are my mean times to failure? What are my mean times to repair? All that kind of stuff and build around that. We're not necessarily resilient to human attack. And I think it probably I mentioned this in the presentation that I gave to you, although there, there are many examples, but I probably used the GPS example. I mean, GPS is designed to be resilient when a satellite fails. We merely move it out and we move a new one in and we have spares up there because we understand, you know, I need 24 working satellites. I've got 30 you know, I've got plenty of spares. What we're not used to or not ready for is what happens if we have an adversary Vladimir Putin leaps to mind, who says, I'm going to knock down all your GPS satellites at once. And I've got the anti-satellite technology to do it. And I've demonstrated that it works. Then what do we do? And that's a different level of resiliency that we as a society need to deal with. Yeah, that's, that's, I'm just shudder when I think about the impacts of something, a system like that and how reliant so many things are on it. Yeah, that's, well, that's, that is great cautionary words there around uh, around uh, the things we have designed or worked to perfect around yeah. storms, weather, natural disaster. Lots of people know a lot about that. Like now we have to factor in this, this um, very real human led thing. And I'm not a, a, a fear, uncertainty, doubt seller. I no. like your analogy to say, just because it hasn't been done. I do think risk is becoming risk. Measurement is becoming a nice scientific approach and in likelihood is part of the yes. equation. Sure. It should be of a highly, highly, highly exotic, but disastrous thing. I mean, you, you you might not spend billions of dollars to protect against that, but something that's got a decent likelihood and a decent impact to, you know, to human beings, eh, we probably ought to be addressing that. So, you know, back in the early 60s, there was um, a major power failure in New York. 
And not only was there a baby boom soon thereafter, but apparently some, I, I read a book many, many years ago, and it obviously left an impression upon me, talking about the fact that there were people who were stuck in elevators. There was no panic. And there was no panic because people were saying, oh, crap, I'm stuck in an elevator. But I know that people know we're here and they're going to get us out. And so knowing that there was, you know, not really widespread panic. So yesterday I was at the post office and um, there were just a few of us in the building. And one of the people who was in the building said, hey, does anybody here have Verizon? I can't get my phone to work. And I looked and sure enough, I had no connectivity of any sort. Okay, five, 10 minutes later, I leave. I go to call my wife. I can't get her because I have no service. All right, well, I was going to a store that was down the road. I didn't know exactly where it was. And I you know, go to maps on my phone. But of course, that's not gonna work. Now, is it? Because yeah. I had no connectivity. Yeah. I went without connectivity for somewhere between 30 and 40 minutes. And all this time, I've got all these scenarios. Let's see, I should call my wife to tell her, oh, I can't do that until I get home or I get to my office. Yeah. Oh, crap. My office, I have a desk phone, but how am I going to call her? She has a cell phone. And when I finally got a hold of her, she hadn't been using her phone for the previous 45 minutes. She didn't know there was a problem. Yeah. And I'm sitting here going through all the stuff I can't do. Yeah. Um, that we take for granted. It's, absolutely. It's, Don't it's, even think twice. The next generation younger definitely doesn't think about it. It's always been there. Um, I was thinking in my head, why didn't you reach in the glove for a paper map uh, or go to the local payphone? Oh, right. They're not anywhere. <laughs> that's right. I still have maps and I can still read them, but that's because I'm a map and chart weenie. Look over my shoulder, you know. I, I, nautical charts. That's, uh, I, that's, that's yeah. a beach somewhere, right? That's coastal, isn't it? That is very coastal. That is our local intracoastal waterway. But, right. but I, I, I teach charting and plotting and navigation, and I love it. Now, partially because I'm a mathematician and partially because I'm a chart weenie. But the fact of the matter is what I really need to teach people is how to use their GPS. And that is much harder. But also when they do something on the GPS, I want them to know how to chart and plot on a paper chart so that they have a fighting chance of knowing when they're getting a totally wrong answer. And yet, what is the trend? The trend is to get rid of paper charts. Noah wants to have paper charts gone by 2025 and everything will be electronic chart. And we've already seen problems in maritime with inaccurate paper charts or an over-reliance on our tools and not a seaman's eye. And yet in aviation, they will tell you, don't trust your senses, trust your instruments because the air can screw up your senses. You may think you're flying level Look at the artificial horizon on the instrument panel. And if they disagree, fly the instrument. Whereas on the water, it's frequently use a seaman's eye is where the GPS is telling you, does that make sense? It says you're next to a green buoy. You look outside, you're next to a red buoy. Trust the fact that you're next to a red buoy. Yeah. Act yeah, accordingly. I, I, you know, I, two sort of anecdotal stories came to mind. I, I was told that in the 90s, mid 90s, I was one of the last class of new Navy officers that learned about Loran Charlie and shot sun lines, you know, they they do all that. When I got to my first ship, it's like, you know, you got to do all this stuff. And I'd heard that that was dispensed with and uh, just rely on the GPS. And I always wondered about that. And I've heard that some of that, maybe some of those skills have come back to future generations because somebody did say, huh. Maybe brought sections back in 2015. Um, I, I remember actually very specifically the meeting I went to where the Navy ROTC commander told me about that. And we both agreed it was not because the Navy was going back to their love and lore of the ocean. It was more like, you know, the Admiral would like to know roughly vaguely where in the North Atlantic are we? But Loran Sea, I mean, Loran Sea was shut off in 2010 or thereabouts. Oh, okay. I, I, and, I left the service in, in 1997. So Loran Sea was still in play. But, they, but they, I, it's, a, it's a fun analogy, fun, uh, scary, whatever. These reliance on systems, eliminating older systems, paper, and going more and more in the electronic realm, our whole world, everything is doing, not just maritime, everything's doing that. Then we become reliant on it. Then we become then we become more and more vulnerable to other human beings. And that's the state of play. And and the fact is, I, I ride my bike several times a week. 
And I, I have an app on my phone to track my ride. You know, again, I'm, I'm a map weenie, right? And there are days where my map, uh, my, my, my ride, my, you know, uh, map my ride app can show me being on this side of the street or that side of the street. And there are other days where I'll be riding and the map will show me riding right through somebody's house. Yeah. Um, I mean, the fact is that all this technology really is cool. It is amazing what we can do and what you and I have seen changes in our lifetime. And it works almost perfectly when nobody's screwing with it. We didn't build any of this stuff with the mind that somebody's going to screw with it. You know, I remember when I first got on a relative of the internet. Uh, well, I, I started using the ARPANET in 1981 when I was at Livermore. And then when I left and went back to Vermont, I was working at a, I, w- I was an adjunct professor at a school that was on a different network called the, um, the BitNet. And BitNet and the CSNet, you know, they could all, you know, talk via the internet. You know, we could send emails and stuff like that. And it was so cool, but we were such a closed group. Nobody in the ARPANET community was going to screw around with the ARPANET. Why? That wasn't the point. We were all trying to build something. And it wasn't until we met commercialization and let everybody play with these networks that we had built that, okay, modern society, you know, crept in, you know, something else that we wanted to build for universal peace. Do you know the guy who in many ways um, is credited with the whole idea of, of having this this global network. This guy named J.C. Licklider. No, I don't know that name. I was going to picture that I would know the name when you said it, but so I mean, you hear names uh, like like Kleinrock, who basically invented packet switching. But J.C. or Licklider in the early '60s, was, he's a psychologist who came up with this idea of an intergalactic connected network where people could communicate directly with each other unfettered by geopolitical boundaries. Now, isn't that the coolest idea in the world? And he had that idea before any of that technology existed. And and then, of course, you know, we built the networks that we have today. And the internet provides us what Licklider, you know, thought would be a good idea. And it is a good idea when you only have people involved and you get governments out of the way. But then you have what we've now seen for the last five or six years is any idiot can publish, and they do, and they can say whatever the hell they want, and we don't have people that are critical enough thinkers to be able to say, this source has credibility, that source does not, and we have enabled that old adage about a lie can make it eight times around the world before the truth even gets out of bed. Yeah, we're in a a different age now on information and quality and and what's real and what's not and all that sort of thing. Well, Gary, I think uh, this has been beyond fascinating. There's so many threads we could pull, and uh, um, and but I've been told that the four-hour podcast just isn't a thing. So I, I got to say thank you very much for uh, not only coming on the show and, and being on our our, uh, our live shows on Wednesdays at one this year. Uh, we didn't know each other before that, and, and so I really That's appreciate true. responding to my reach out. I'm glad we're now connected, and this is a fascinating vertical, uh, especially for me with my background. It's really fascinating to see what you're you know what you're doing and what's happening there so i look forward to future discussions with you and uh uh thank you thank you for your uh your, your service for our country in many in many ways no thank you well we're at that time of the show where i like to uh, uh end with the same sort of fun thing that i've borrowed from another show which they borrowed from another show so it's called the devo questionnaire um i got it from watching episodes of inside the actor studio for many years off and on uh, and the host, uh, the long, long time host of that show, James Lipton, would interview yeah. all the famous actors and actresses. But he always ended the show with this unique questionnaire that he called the Pavot questionnaire. So when I looked into it, he borrowed it from a French show. And so I've not changed a word of it. And if you're up for it, we'll end uh, end our time together with the Pavot questionnaire. Sure. All right. What is your favorite word? There's something about having knee jerk reactions to things. I, I've never thought in terms of having a favorite word. But somehow I interpret your question as concept, and I've many. I, I, I think my top favorite word would be friendship. What is your least favorite word? Whatever word has the following definition. We've always done it that way. So I guess that would be sloth. <laughs> what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Curiosity. 
what turns you off? Whatever word translates to the meaning of we've always done it that way. I guess that would be sloth. What is your favorite curse word? Well, I will admit I sort of lean towards the F word, but that reminds me of a story. Can I tell you a story? Um, when my son was very young, two, three, one day he, he, he was doing something and I was reading and he had trouble um, getting something done. He said, oh, shit. And, and then he looked at me and I said, Joshua, listen, I know sometimes you say stuff like that may make you feel better for a moment. Do not let your mother hear you say that. And she said, but dad, I heard that from mom. And then I remembered, I use the F word. She uses the S word. I said, Joshua, you're coming right with me to talk to your mother. And so, um, yeah, but anyway. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? I drive an eco-tour boat every Friday night. I've been doing that now for about eight and a half years. My favorite noise is hearing a dolphin blowhole. What sound or noise do you hate? Well, it's somewhere between fingernails on a chalkboard, loud mufflers. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I don't live having doubts or having regrets in my life. For any number of reasons, I never entered the military. I'm in the Coast Guard Auxiliary now, been that for many, many years, and I've taught at the Coast Guard Academy. One of my life alternative paths was to have gone into the Coast Guard or the Navy. And sometimes I think I wish I had. What profession would you not like to do? I don't think I would like any profession where I wasn't allowed the freedom to think and do stuff differently. That, 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 that's a sort of wide field. I've never really thought about professions I wouldn't like. I, I, I don't think I would be happy collecting trash or asking people if they want fries with their hamburger. I don't think I would find them fulfilling. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Rats. Can't think of his name. There was a famous philosopher who said, if, if, if I found that to be the case, I would ask God, where's the evidence? I don't think I would have the temerity to ask God to explain stuff. <laughs> He's got a lot. He or she has a lot of explaining to do. Yeah, I guess I guess the only answer would be, you know, like, why? All right. I've just wrapped up another uh, super interesting episode of the CSA podcast with Gary Kessler, Gary Kessler, president of Gary Kessler Associates, but a uh, man of many, many projects and uh, associations and organizations. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and for all your years of, of service uh, to us all. Thank you, Gary. Thanks for having me, Derek. Take care. Bye-bye.